Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this is going to be a webinar that is going to teach you, uh, provide some instructions on this new world that we live in and the succession planning responsibilities, ethical responsibilities that we as attorneys have with this unique set of circumstances that's come upon us since the spring. Um, this is uh, under the bankruptcy section of the uh, Boston Bar Association, uh, specifically the COVID-19 task force of the bankruptcy section of the Boston Bar Association. And um, uh, we're uh, privileged to join uh, our panel here, a uh, wonderful panel. Um, first, we have uh, Frank Morrissey, uh, who is a bankruptcy practitioner at um, uh, Morrissey, Wilson, and Zephropolis uh, in Quincy. We have um, Jeffrey Wolf, who is the Assistant uh, General Counsel at the BBO. Uh, we have um, uh, Elizabeth Holding, is, she's the co-chair of the um, BBA's Ethics Committee, and she is a litigation partner at uh, Peabody and Arnold. And we also have Susan Letterman-White, who is the Senior Practice Advisor at uh, LOMAP. Um, and so we have, we have a lot of information to get through and a lot of opinions to share. Uh, we're very uh, we're very excited that you're joining us and uh, we're going to be um zoom has uh, the ability to um you can type questions uh as the as the program goes on we may not be able to get to them at that moment we're going to save uh, a few minutes at the end to, to take questions um and so if you don't get yours answered um just stick around until the end um and uh i'm now going to toss it to frank but actually first i forgot to announce what i was supposed to say that i just forgot um is that I want to invite everyone um, uh, that the BBA bankruptcy section and the uh, 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 VLP is having a training session for lawyers who uh, want to get involved in, um, in bankruptcy practice. Um, there's a lot of pro bono uh, bankruptcy uh, opportunities out there and there's going to be a training uh, that is going to be this Thursday, July 23rd. Uh, from one to five, and uh, it's going to um, be an opportunity to take a bankruptcy case or two or more um, and have a mentor um, alongside you so you can learn how to do it. Um, we all know there's a flood of bankruptcies coming. Uh, we don't know when, but they're going to come, and uh, there's going to be a lot of people in need. And uh, for more information on that, um, you can go to the BBA uh, bankruptcy section landing page. Uh, again, it's going to be Thursday, the 23rd of this month from one to five. So, so Frank is, uh, uh, is uh, going to tell us about a uh, sort of a unique um, animal um, uh, that exists in the bankruptcy world here in this district. Um, it, it exists to, it's called the Overseer Protocol, and it is something that exists to assist clients of lawyers that find themselves incapacitated, um, uh, either by disbarment or death, uh, it's not a happy subject, but is necessary. And so for the ins and outs on that, Frank, could you tell us about what the protocol is, what an overseer is? Let us know. Th th am I, am I live? Thank, thank you, Jacob. Really appreciate the warm introduction. And I'm very grateful to be on this distinguished panel. I'm really looking forward to the substantive presentations that are going to be forthcoming. I, uh, I want to thank Don and Christine and Mackin for recruiting me, and I'm particularly grateful to the attendees. Uh, I understand there's uh, more than 60 of you uh, attending this conference virtually, 
and it's the best afternoon in the summer, and, and we're very grateful for your time and attention. Uh, Jacob's right. I'm going to tell you a little bit about the protocol, but I'm really going to tell you about the genesis of this program. So uh, when the COVID-19 pandemic hit us, the bankruptcy section asked Jacob and I to update the BBA bankruptcy section's disabled, suspended, and disbarred attorney protocol to make sure that the bankruptcy section could meet this, the challenge. And the expectation was, and, and I'm grateful that it wasn't realized, but the expectation was that we were going to have a wave of attorney disabilities and there was going to be a lot of stress put on the system and the bankruptcy lawyers at the BBA wanted to be ready for it. So let me just tell you just in very, very broad strokes about the protocol. The protocol only applies when the SJC enters a bar discipline order and the order may be disbarring an attorney, it may be suspending the attorney because she's suffered a disability, um, or it could be an order appointing a commissioner to wind up an attorney's practice. It's only implicated, the protocol only is implemented when there's a bar discipline order. And under the protocol, a person selected or designated by the bankruptcy section is designated an overseer. It's a fancy word, an archaic word, an acronistic word, but in a nutshell, what the overseer does is the overseer lets the affected clients know about the attorney's status and tries to find pro bono representation for the affected clients. And typically the focus is on um, clients who have uh, commenced debtor cases, individual clients, human beings who have commenced debtor cases um, in the district. The clients are identified through PACER, the court, uh, you know, enters an order um, invoking the protocol, the overseer sends a letter and communicates as much as possible with the affected clients. The affected clients are informed of the attorney status. The attorney may be dead. The attorney may be um, suspended because of disability. The attorney may be suspended for by discipline reasons. Um, and we try to find them pro bono assistance in, in the debtor cases. As an overseer, you work very closely with the court, in particular Molly Sharon, who's the clerk, who does an outstanding job. Um, you work with the U.S. trustee system. You work with the, the BBO. You work with any commissioner appointed in these cases. Um, and you work with a section. And uh, overseer sounds like a fancy title, but really you're, you're, you're looking to recruit people to do pro bono work for clients who no longer have an attorney that can represent them in the bank system. Um, and and I, I have a little anecdote. My old boss, Judge Hillman, I remember it like it was yesterday. Uh, I clerked with Farm in 1996. He described the protocol as the jewel, the jewel of the banking system. And I remember it like it was yesterday. He told me, who was a, um, I think the technical word is a Weisenheimer lawyer, very cynical guy who thought he understood it all a couple of years out of law school. He told me that the buyer's finest hour was when Mike Paponi of Goodwin Proctor was handling a chapter 13 case and Bill McCarthy, really iconic lawyers when I just got out of law school, and Bill McCarthy from Ropes and Gray uh, was handling a, a, a 523 adversary proceeding. 
And he said, that's really the, the you know, the, um, the high watermark of the bar, that the bar stepped up and took care of people that no longer had a lawyer. And, and that's how the system works because pro se litigation is a huge problem for the system. It's a huge problem for the client. Client interests aren't protected unless they have a lawyer. Bankruptcy is complicated and that's why we have counsel. So the protocol works well. And again, to quote Judge Hillman, it's the jewel of the system, but, but it has a limited scope. It's only triggered, only triggered when the bar discipline system enters an order to wind up the affected attorney's practice. The expectation is that the attorney's not coming back, that the attorney files will be dispersed to clients, um, the attorney's matters will be uh, handled either on a pro bono basis or a compensated basis, but the attorney's not coming back. The attorney's done, the, the, the attorney's practice is over. Um, in particular, the practice, excuse me, in particular, the protocol doesn't handle the situation where someone is temporarily disabled. You know, if you have, uh, you have a, 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 a COVID or you have a, 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 an injury that's gonna um, keep you out of practice for a, a, a limited period of time and you wanna come back to practice. The, the protocol is, is not designed to deal with that situation and it's not a good tool to deal with that situation. So it got Jacob and I thinking, um, you know, we're gonna update the protocol and you know polish the protocol and so forth. But we also had the idea that educating the Banksy buyer about that disaster planning would also help address the issues raised by COVID-19. And it would more importantly enhance the public's confidence in the Banksy system. So we, so we organized today's seminar and we're delighted to be on the seminar with um, Jeffrey Wolf from the, from the BBO, who's a, an outstanding uh, scholar of ethics and practice, and Elizabeth Holding, who's the chairman of the uh, Banksy Buyers Ethics Section, and Susan Letterman White, who's at LobeMap, which is a huge resource for lawyers. Um, so I, I'm gonna close with some personal comments, and, and it's at the risk of um, preaching to the converted, because you wouldn't be here on a, a beautiful summer day if you didn't think this stuff was important and relevant. Um, but the, the fact is, um, we don't know when we're gonna be taken out of the game. Um, I lost my sister Donna in May to COVID-19. She was 51 years old. No one saw this coming. No one saw this coming. I didn't see it coming when she was hospitalized. I said, well, she's gonna be in the hospital, she'll be out. Um, this COVID-19 is serious stuff and it's dangerous stuff. and separate apart from COVID-19, you, you, you just don't know what life has in store for you. So you, you wanna get your house in order. And again, I'm preaching to the converted, but the same way you have a, an estate plan for your family, you wanna make sure your, your partner is protected and your sons and daughters are protected and your relatives are protected, the same way you have a, an estate plan for your personal life, um, you should have a disaster plan for your professional life. And uh, this, this COVID crisis has got us all thinking and, and just getting ready for the seminar, it occurred to me that having a disaster plan is just as important professionally as it is to have a, an estate plan for your family and your personal life. So, so it's that important and there are a lot of resources out there. There are a lot of people who are out there that can help you. Um, and I'm gonna turn it over to 
the panel who really knows what they're talking about, but my final comment will be that there are a lot of resources out there. There, there are impersonal resources. You can pull stuff off the BBO's website and LOMAP's website. And you can research anything remotely, but there are a lot of uh, human resources. Um, and I'm gonna speak for the panel now that if anybody needs help with any of the stuff we discuss, you can reach us through the BBA. And we, if we can't help you ourselves, and uh, I think Jeffrey and Elizabeth and Susan are outstanding, and they, 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 you're talking to uh, Murder's Row and the Yankees when you're talking to them. But if we can't do it ourselves, we will find someone to help you with anything we discuss this afternoon. So please um, reach out, ping us, and the only thing I regret about this afternoon is we're doing this remotely and with social distance. And I look forward to getting together with everyone in person when we get through this uh, stressful time. So thank you for the opportunity to speak to you on a beautiful Saturday afternoon. So I'll turn it over to Jeffrey. So Frank, so thank you so much for those words. Uh, uh, Jeffrey, I'm, gonna, uh, I'm just gonna be the traffic cop. Okay. How about you, how, let's have you jump in and uh, and provide us some perspective. Okay, thank you. All right. Uh, as Frank said, I'm Jeffrey Wolf. I'm an assistant general counsel at the Board of Borrowers. Before that, I was an assistant bar counsel, which meant I did investigations and prosecutions of bar discipline case. Before that, I was a solo and small firm practitioner, civil litigation. So I have three perspectives to bring to you today on uh, what I have to say. And let me just start with my PowerPoint and then I will, um, uh, okay, get rid of this bar, slideshow, come on. Okay, so while it says, uh, the front screen says bankruptcy lawyers, I'm really not gonna talk about bankruptcy lawyers. Frank has, has said, uh, I think probably all that we're really gonna talk about that focuses on bankruptcy. Um, but let me get to this. So first of all, my usual disclaimer, um, I um, will have to say that um, these are my personal opinions and they don't necessarily reflect the opinions of the Supreme Judicial Court, the Board of Bar Overseers who do, does the adjudications or the Office of the Bar Council who does the prosecutions. Um, so let me start with um, what has become the theme for today. Hmm. And that's really it. That's what succession planning and disaster planning is. I need some help. I need somebody. Uh, and yeah, maybe you didn't need anybody's help before, but maybe you do now, or maybe you will, because your independence could have vanished in the haze. So let me talk about some of the assumptions uh, and topics. First of all, uh, this is, the focus is on solo and small firm practitioners. Uh, I'm assuming you're not at a firm where there's another lawyer who can take over your practice. I'm also not going to talk about bankruptcy law. I know very little about bankruptcy law and I'm, succession and state planning is really not uh, about bankruptcy law per se. The other thing, Frank talked about the commissioner program, the, the overseers that are appointed. This is 
trying to avoid that situation. And I'm also not going to talk about lawyers, uh, succession planning for lawyers who've been suspended or disbarred. Uh, they've got a 30-day wind-up period, and uh, that's it. Um, and they may have to unload their practices, but I'm not going to uh, talk about people who are going out of practice specifically as a result of bar discipline. Um, uh, the other thing is a lot of bankruptcy, and, and I'll just say as, as background, when I started to prepare for this and I was talking with Frank and Jacob and a couple of other people on their committee, they said, well, you know, solo and small firm bankruptcy lawyers do other practice areas. They do criminal law, they do estate planning, they do uh, uh, personal injury. And so if you're going to talk about planning for bankruptcy lawyers, you really need to talk about the other practice areas, not just uh, the bankruptcy uh, area. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to talk about bankruptcy law. Um, the, um, the other thing is um, you're not planning on selling or merging your practice. I'm assuming that uh, and you're not going to bring somebody in uh, to groom them to take over your practice. I'm talking about literally planning for the unexpected. Uh, and I, I believe Susan's going to talk about people who are winding down the practice. That's another area that I'm not going to cover. So the topics I'm going to cover generally, why you should have a disaster plan, a succession plan, what's the difference? Um, uh, the um, issues of general considerations for disaster plans and some of the ethical uh, considerations in having these. So why plan for disaster or succession? Uh, among other things, um, you, let's get rid of this for a second so I can see my screen. Um, COVID-19 has brought home to all of us, uh, lawyers included, that a disabling injury or illness or death can happen to anyone at any age, and I already expressed my condolences to Frank about the tragic and unplanned, unexpected death of his sister, but that really points out what we are talking about here. Um, it's not, disaster and succession planning is not just for the senior lawyers. Um, and what did the Beatles say? My independence seemed to vanish in the haze. This could be anything, a stroke or a heart attack. It could be an accident or an injury. It could be COVID-19 or other illness so that, um, there's no way to anticipate what's coming. Uh, so planning can protect your clients if something unexpected happens to you, death, disability, illness, family emergency. You may need to leave your practice for something other than related to your personal uh, health or well-being. Planning for somebody to take over your practice can also protect your state if you pass or your family, regardless if something unexpected happens to you. Without a plan for a short-term emergency or a longer plan, you're the personal representative of your estate, if you die, or the holder of your durable power of attorney, if you're ill or incapacitated, that person becomes responsible for your clients, their files, their confidential information, and the funds and your, their funds and your law practice. So if you don't have something else in plan, that's going to be the default person. Uh, so the question, obviously, since I come from the bar discipline world is rhetorical, but have you funded your employee retirement accounts? Uh, something happens to you, you better make sure that your uh, uh, payments have been made. Lucier was indefinitely suspended. He was a solo practitioner. He withheld um, money from his paralegal's retirement account, but didn't make timely payments. Uh, this all became apparent. Uh, 
uh, and uh, he was indefinitely suspended, which means he's out for a minimum of five years. The next step up from that is disbarment in Massachusetts. The only reason Lucier was not disbarred was that after this came to four, he, he made full restitution. But we, in, this, in a time of financial crunch, um, you don't skimp on making your tax payments and you don't skimp on making your retirement contributions for your uh, employees. So what is a disaster plan? What is a succession plan? Um, at a minimum, uh, sorry, let me move this other way here. At a minimum, it's going to be a written list of steps that are to be taken if you die or you become unable to fulfill your duties to your clients because of illness or incapacity. I'm going to go over a lot of this several different ways to get it across, but for starters, it should include some steps that both temporary and disability, uh, permanent inability uh, to meet your duties as a lawyer. It's got to cover anything, whether it's an accident, an illness, cognitive disability, or death. It should address both practice-related issues like work in progress, whatever your practice area is, whatever you're doing, scheduled events, deadlines, statute limitations, and financial matters. Obviously, client trust funds are the most important thing, but they, you could be holding other client property. Um, you have to worry about sharing present and future earnings. Do you have referral fees? Uh, or, or are you dividing fees with somebody? Uh, what about prepaid flat fees for work that's not completed, whether it's bankruptcy or criminal law or state planning, anything? There's any number of areas where there are prepaid flat fees and the lawyer may not be able to complete the work uh, that is covered by the flat fee. An additional consideration is if you're in shared office space. Aside from your financial obligations to your suite mates, there's issues about access to your files and the security of your files. You're not, allowed, you're not there. Is anybody going to go rummaging through your files in your absence? So you need to compile your disaster plan, your succession plan, with the rec and have the requisite forms. And I'll talk about this in more detail how you get there. But when you put all this stuff together, what you should be looking at uh, to distinguish it from the plan itself is uh, what the ABA is called a casualty manual. In other words, that's the com compilation, not just of the steps to be taken, but also the forms, the authorizations, uh, and the necessary information for uh, your successor to use. So for some issues to consider, uh, who's gonna have access to your files, right? Who's your successor, but how they, how they gonna access your files? Do they have a list of your clients and your cases and your client contact information? Are they gonna, they're gonna need an updated list of your passwords and there's gonna be other IT issues, which I'll talk about. Um, they'll need written authority to transfer or take over your cases. And um, that means your clients are going to have to agree in advance to somebody being your successor uh, so that there will be a seamless transition from your practice to somebody taking it over or finding somebody else to take it over. Uh, but you're going to need client authorization, which I'll talk about. You absolutely have to take steps to protect confidential client information. It's an ethical obligation besides a practical one. Um, somebody's going to need access to the client funds you're holding for any number of reasons. They, if there's an advance payment for expenses, they need to be accessed. Um, if there's an advance uh, fee, a retainer, uh, somebody's going to need to get paid out of that retainer. Um, if there are other funds that are being held in escrow, if you're an escrow agent for say a real estate closing or something like that, um, at some point that's gonna need to be dispersed. And of course, if you're doing plaintiff's personal injury work, you may have some settlement that you've received that needs to be 
dispersed, liens need to be paid, fees need to be paid, and the clients, of course, need to be paid. So uh, in bankruptcy, and I'm not going to get into this, but I am told by my bankruptcy colleagues that there are some special considerations that you bankruptcy lawyers need to take into account for adversary proceedings. So you need to share your plan. People need to know about it. Um, you have to share it with the appropriate colleagues, with any business partners, with any next of kin, people who need to know what to be able to do with it. So your successor, when you've got one, needs to know how to do a number of things and how to access things. They need to know how to access your personnel records of your employees. You need to know how to account, uh, get to the retirement accounts and the deposit information for your employees, the plan administrators and so on. You don't want to be in the loose year situation of not having made your payments because nobody knew how to make them. Uh, other areas, you know, your personal payroll taxes, your social security, stuff that needs to be paid, uh, you know, you need the, your successor needs to know how to take care of that. They need to how to get into bank accounts, business and trust. You know, I'll leave your personal accounts aside, but certainly anything that's practice related, uh, your uh, successor uh, who's going to step into your shoes needs to be able to get into those. Safe deposit boxes if you're holding other client property, uh, storage facilities that may hold files, you may need to access closed files. Again, access the computers, email, voicemail. Again, they'll need access codes and passwords. There may be other business documents that they'll need to get into. Leases, advertising contracts, maintenance and repair contracts. I mean, your office is, is running and, and it needs to be kept running. Uh, access to the business credit cards. How is your business running? And, and any other business records that may need to be addressed. Make sure your malpractice is paid up and that uh, if there are any claims that they're promptly notified so there's not a disclaimer for lack of notice to the carrier. So material specifically related to your law practice. I mean, this is all sort of general business stuff. You don't have to be a lawyer, uh, except for some of the, uh, the trust funds to, to be having these concerns. But some of these areas are also specifically related. Before I get to the law practice stuff, let's talk about digital life after death. So there you are, you're gone. And there you're, there's your ghost and your office. Uh, but there's a number of things you need to be considered about for your digital life after death and how to prepare for it. So there are these password manager programs. I'm not going to identify any of them. You can do your own research. I'm not uh, favoring any of them. But they exist to allow you to store login information and account numbers and so on. Some of them allow you to store email addresses of contacts to be notified in the event of your disability or death. So you might consider whether it's good to have a program that will automatically um, contact somebody uh, if you can't do it uh, for yourself or somebody can't do it else for you. Facebook and some, but not all the social media programs allow you to add a legacy contact. Uh, you know, you, you, you're gone or you're uh, disabled and now how does somebody get to your, your social media account, your email account, whatever. Two-factor authentication. This is not for the um, Luddites among technology. But you probably know that your cell phone or your computer allows you to either put your thumb on it or uh, have some other biometric, look at your face, whatever. That secondary uh, authentication besides typing in your password is called two-factor authentication. Um, and you're gone. So how does somebody get into your computer or your phone if they need your your face or they need your thumbprint? Uh, 
Some mobile phones and some programs allow you to add a second biometric trusted person. So either you or your successor council can uh, come up and uh, look at it or, or use their thumbprint. Otherwise, you're going to need some alternate solutions. I'm not proposing any, but you will need an alternate solution as we move more and more toward two-factor uh, authentication. You go to log into something and it says, we'll send you a text message to your phone for, with a six-digit code. If you don't have the phone and you can't access the phone, you're not going to be able to use that second factor or the two-factor authentication. So what this means in part is physically back it up. Uh, and I'm not just being old school here. Because even if you have cloud storage, it's a good idea to have a secondary physical backup. Those of you who were in the military and those of you who are trial lawyers are big believers in redundant systems. Something will always go wrong. So have a physical backup, an external hard drive. Not all cloud storage providers make it easy for successor counsel to access data that's stored in the cloud. Um, I suggest that you get in the habit of backing up files on a regular basis to, to this external hard drive. And obviously you should provide instructions on how to allow your successor to access both your cloud storage and the physical backup. So let's talk about accessing computers and hard copies and backups of practice related materials. Again, they're gonna to have to get into the nuts and bolts of your practice. They're going to have to get into client contacts, lists, codes, client ledgers, which are mandatory under rule 1.15F. Um, they're going to need to know your referral sources to tell them that you are not taking business anymore. And if some of them are owed business or, or money uh, to pay them, they need to get into your calendar, your tickler dates, your statute of limitations. They need to know what's going on so that your clients don't have a problem. Um, they need to get in your fee agreement so that you know how the clients are to be paid uh, or you're to be paid uh, and your time and billing records. Uh, they need to obviously get into your accounts receivable and your accounts payable, same reason. Um, those of us who live in an electronic world with e-filing, whether it's uh, CME, CF, and federal court, or uh, the various e-filing programs in superior court and the state courts, they need that, but they're also going to need your email. Uh, because a lot of times, I know when I get I file something in federal court, I get an email or, and, and with the SJC, because uh, that's where we practice the BBO, I get an email that it's been accepted, that, it, that it's been filed, and then I got an email telling me that it's been accepted for filing. If you don't have your email, you're not going to know about this. They're obviously going to need to get into your closed storage and inventory uh, to see your client may want their file, uh, or that you may need to get the file. So that takes us, of course, to the issue of file retention. So under the recently amended rules of the professional conduct in Massachusetts, uh, a lawyer has to retain files, client files for six years after the match has been completed or the engagement has been terminated. Um, if a client hasn't requested the file within that time, then the file can be destroyed without further notice. However, intrinsically valuable documents such as wills must be either turned over to the client or kept until they no longer possess intrinsic value. There are other exceptions in the rule that pertain to circumstances where there's a pending or anticipated lawsuit or another kind of claim relating to the client matter where you can't just chuck the file. I will say that you can agree with your client that you don't have to keep it for six years after the matter has been concluded. So that if you have an agreement to destroy the file within less than six years, then you can do so. But absent an agreement, you probably have to keep it for six years. If you've got a minor, um, you're gonna have to keep it until 
when that uh, the, the client's minority no longer becomes an issue. And you can use your beetle wastebasket, but you have to dispose of things uh, safely and not disclose client confidential information uh, in an unprotected fashion. So do not abandon client files. Here's another lesson. So two lessons. One was Delaney. Delaney abandoned his law practice. And not only did he abandon his law practice, but he left a lot of open files and closed files lying around, documents and file drawers and cabinets and stuff was literally on desks and tables. And he didn't make any of this available to the current clients, and the former clients. He was indefinitely suspended. Uh, Thompson uh, was suspended for a year and a day. She abandoned her law practice, um, but it was due to her incapacity. So she was suspended for a year and a day. The only reason she wasn't out longer was it was mitigated by her medical condition and her total disability. She's not coming back to the practice of law, but she sat, got suspended anyway. So there's a lesson to you uh, about, you can't just say, well, nothing's gonna happen if I don't have a disaster plan, I'm gonna be out and then someone else will have to pick up the pieces, uh, but you may get suspended for that. So as part of the disaster succession plan, consider on returning or offering to return close files to their clients, or as I said before, getting permission to destroy them earlier. You know, if you don't need this stuff anymore, then give it back or get permission to destroy it. But you have to dispose of things properly, not in your beetle wastebasket. Uh, but if you can strip the file down uh, and only keep the parts you need, that's okay under the rule. We do have an article on our website about this, so I will defer to that. Uh, I mentioned an office manual in passing, and no, that is not Frank's office manual, the bottom. Uh, but even if you are a solo practitioner, you should have an office manual. Uh, it should include all the items identified in the preceding slides. It should explain how to generate any data that's electronically stored. We're all in an ESI world, electronically stored information. So if you've got lists of accounts, passwords, if you've got your IOLTA account records, you can have those electronically, but somebody needs to be able to get at them. Maybe your tickler uh, system or your deadlines is electronically, so you can constantly update it. Time and billing records are probably entered electronically. Uh, so all of this stuff needs to be able to be identified and accessed. Um, and that should be in your office manual. You should keep your office manual up to date. It's not good enough just to have one. I say this because a number of computer programs uh, and, and maybe your office already set up this way to require you to update your password on a regular basis. Ours is every, every uh, 90 days. So if you aren't doing that already, you should consider that. But uh, some of these have an automatic uh, requirement to update your password. So if you have to update your password, then make sure you've provided that updated information in your office manual where somebody should do it. And if you're not updating your passwords automatically in your office, then you should consider doing that. So ethics rules. There are rules that govern disaster planning and succession planning, um, apart from what Frank pointed out about the lawyer who is suspended and disbarred. And there's a whole list of them, all right? Uh, so rule point one, 1.1 1 .1 is about competence. And that includes, by the way, technology competence. It's comment A to rule 1.1. Rule 1.2a, seeking the client's lawful objectives, doing what you were supposed to be doing and identifying the scope of what you're supposed to be doing. 1.3, you have to act with diligence. You know, if you may have the competence, but you may not act diligently. So you have to do that. You have to communicate with your clients, make sure they know what's going on and 
get their input on decisions that have to be made. That's 1.4. Fees and fee splitting are covered by rule 1.5. Sorry. Uh, 1.6 uh, deals with client confidential information. Rules 1.7 and rule 1.10 address various aspects of conflict of interest. I'll talk about those in a little more detail later. Rule 1.15, as you all probably know or should know, is about client funds and IOLTA accounts. Rule 1.15a, the recently amended uh, rule or invented rule, they split between 115 and 116, has to do with client files and file retention. And rule 1.16 governs withdrawal from a case which includes being terminated. So the rules of professional comment, comment three on diligence, tells you it's time to talk about something, Mr. Frosty, it's time to talk about planning. It's March. And of course, now it's July. So it's too late for Mr. Frosty. But to prevent neglect of client matters in the event of a solo practitioner's death or disability, the duty of diligence may require that each practitioner prepare a plan in conformity with the applicable rules of professional conduct that designates another competent lawyer to review client files, notify each client of the lawyer's death, disability or death, and determine whether there's a need for immediate protective action. Is there a statute of limitations coming up? Something, is there a deposition that needs to be covered? Whatever. So the, the rules are already ahead of this and what you should be doing. So a few reminders about attorney's fees. You must tell the client, this is not about uh, succession planning. This is just basic nuts and bolts here. Um, you have to tell the client in writing within a reasonable amount of time uh, after commencing the, the representation. If you haven't already, the basis or rate of the fee and how the expenses are gonna be charged or calculated. Fees, including flat fees and hourly fees, not just contingency fees, cannot be divided with someone outside of your law firm without the advanced written consent of, a, of the client. So if you're fee splitting in any kind of law practice, they need to, the client needs to consent in writing in advance to the fee split. A flat fee is considered earned when it's paid, therefore doesn't have to be held in the IOLT account it can be deposited directly into the business account. However, if the matter covered by flat fee is not completed, then you have to return the unearned portion of the fee. And therefore it's wise to do two things. One I've got right here, which is to set aside money to make a potential refund if it's necessary. The other is keep track of your time even if it's a flat fee. So cautionary tale, I've got several of them. Um, matter of Watson, the lawyer, and I actually picked bankruptcy examples because this was originally going to be a bankruptcy program. Um, the lawyer neglected three bankruptcy matters and in all three received advance payments of flat fees and expenses. He failed to complete all three of them, failed to return the owner and portions of the fees and expenses, failed to tell the clients about the status of their matters. And after he got fired, he failed to return the files when he was discharged. He was suspended for 18 months. There are other examples in other practice areas, but you can't neglect client matters. Uh, another reminder about fees. A fee cannot be clearly excessive. And rule 1.5 identifies the factors to be considered where whether a fee is considered in Massachusetts to be clearly excessive. A lawyer who withdraws or discharged, is discharged from a flat fee matter before completing it has to return the unearned portion of the fee. That's mandated by rule 1.16. So as I just said a minute ago, 
keep track of your time and also set aside money if that needs to be done. The obligation would fall on your successor for any matters that they assume if you leave the practice of law. So they're going to have to be the ones figuring out how much you're entitled to on that case that you didn't complete where you got an advance payment, how much you're entitled to and how much has to be refunded. It's another reason to maintain good and accessible time in billing records and expense ledgers. Okay, the Beatles, remember what they said, help I need somebody, not just anybody. That's the point. That somebody must be somebody who is both competent and trustworthy. So let's talk about choosing a successor counsel and competence. So they have to be able to, you and your successor have to provide competent representation. That means not only having the necessary knowledge and skill, but seeking the lawful objectives of the client and acting with reasonable diligence and promptness. And taken together, this means that the successor, whether short-term or long-term, must be someone who can competently and responsibly take over your practice. They're either going to be representing the clients themselves or they're going to have to find some competent other successor counsel for your cases to recommend to your clients. Depending on the nature of your practice, you may need more than one successor. If you're doing bankruptcy and criminal law and personal injury law, you've got three different areas and it may not be one person. It may be more than one, even for any one of those areas. Um, so you may need different, different people in different practice areas and more than one person uh, in any given practice area to whom your primary successor can send the work that needs to be handed out. So trust is a major factor in choosing someone to handle your client funds. The whole successor relationship lawyer, uh, successor lawyer relationship is built on trust. That person's going to be responsible for any misuse of your client funds because you've given them access to your trust funds. In matter of Goldberg, the lawyer, now this was not a, dis a disabled lawyer, but the lawyer had given unsupervised authority to his secretary to maintain his checkbooks and sign his name on IOLTA checks. He didn't personally review his IOLTA statements. <clears throat> they were supposed to be sent to his bookkeeper who was going, then going to review them. But the secretary didn't mail the statements to the bookkeeper and the lawyer didn't know that the bookkeeper wasn't getting them and that the bookkeeper wasn't following up on the fact that the bookkeeper wasn't getting the statements. As a result, the secretary was able to steal somewhere between $150,000 and $200,000. I'm not sure they even figured out exactly how much she took. But she took IOLTA funds to pay her own bills. This was an avoidable problem. Prior to hiring the secretary, the lawyer failed to investigate her employment history. And it turned out that she'd been fired from a prior job for misusing law office checks and the office credit card to pay her personal obligations in her prior job. So Mr. Goldberg was suspended for a year and a day and his reinstatement, which never happened, would have been conditioned on two years of financial record keeping probation. So you're responsible for what they do wrong because you've given them authority. So you also need to check with your bank about what's required to give your successor access in the event of your disability. Will your bank take a power of attorney? Are they gonna acquire a court order and a medical certificate? Are they gonna acquire something else? So when you're doing your successor planning, you need to check with your bank to find out what is going to be 
uh, required for somebody to take to have access to your accounts. So let me talk about some other issues in choosing a successor. I said there I have to be already said they have to be competent uh, and responsible. I have to take over. They need to know when to take something themselves and when to recommend to come in somebody else. You should discuss with the possibility of becoming successor with a proposed successor first. Don't just have somebody wake up and find out that they're getting a phone call saying, hey, Larry Lawyer's disabled. He had a stroke or he's in the hospital with COVID-19 and I'm going through his file and I see that you're nominated as, as a successor. Oh, really? So don't do that to somebody. Uh, your successor should be or should become familiar with your office procedures and your systems. How are your files kept? They need to know how you set things up so they can find things. If you're a senior lawyer, it's probably not a good idea to choose another senior lawyer as your intended successor, even on a disaster plan basis. And a lot of states mandate successors, and we see from looking at their records that one senior lawyer chooses another senior lawyer, and then that person really can't pick up the slack when their colleague becomes disabled. So not a good idea. Um, for a disaster plan, the arrangements with successor counsel can be established any number of ways. Um, and it may be uh, something that's gonna be individualized to your practice or even different parts of your practice. But some things to consider, whether it's gonna be a limited power of attorney, you can have some comprehensive agreement with detailed powers or some hybrid uh, agreement in between. So again, I'm assuming you're not bringing somebody into your practice. You're not grooming somebody to take over your practice. Um, so they're gonna be an outside person. So of course your staff should know how to contact your out of office designated successor counsel in the case of an emergency. But beyond that, how do you tell someone else about your case, any particular case, without violating rule 1.6 about maintaining client confidences? Clients have the right to choose or approve successor counsel. Uh, you can't just deal out their cases uh, you know, to your colleagues. The clients have to approve um, successor counsel. Can't be transferred without their success, their consent. That's an SJC case. Meehan versus Shaughnessy, which had to do with the breakup of, or not the breakup, but a split off from Parker Colder, Daly and White. Um, Jesus, 30 years ago. So an exception to this is the sale of a practice under Rule 1.17, where the consent is implied if the client doesn't object within 90 days. But I'm not talking about the sale of practice. So there's no presumptive client consent uh, to any other kind of transfer of cases. So how do you deal with this? Well, one way is when you're doing your new fee agreements, they should specify who would be the successor counsel uh, if one is needed. And if it's, there's a fee division issue, then there should be a provision about dividing the fees with successor counsel whether paid out of retainer or out of contingency fee recovery. For existing matters, the best practice is probably to notify the current clients that you're going to be selecting someone to be successor counsel on their particular case. And again, include this provision because the client has to consent in writing to the division of fees with successor counsel. This will allow you to individualize uh, successor counsel for different matters and for different types of matters, but don't pay them with beetle bills. So 
disaster planning, and conflicts of interest. For obvious reason, your designated council, successor council is going to be people who are in the same practice areas as you, okay? So what this means is it may create conflict of interest problems and that may prevent them from handling some of your work. The more obvious ones are potential conflicts with current clients or a conflict with a former client of yours or theirs, um, conflicts arising from aggregate representation. So for example, um, two people are injured in an accident and uh, you represent one and somebody else represents the other. Um, and let's say one's the driver and the other's the passenger. So the passenger's got a claim against the driver. I told you this is not about bankruptcy. So now one of you is out, right? So that means that the other one is gonna have a con an aggregate conflict because the person representing the uh, driver can't also represent the passenger. And if there's not adequate coverage, then they probably can't represent both passengers because the lawyer for each passenger is trying to be getting the best recovery for their respective clients. So that's the aggregate representation problem. And then there's imputed disqualification um, from changing firms. Uh, but there are other kinds of potential conflicts. The hot potato doctrine, which essentially is dropping one client in order to be able to take on a more favorable client. Uh, the positional or issue conflict where um, let's say you're, you represent landlords, uh, but you've got this great case for a tenant, but successfully representing that tenant may impinge on the position or issues that are, you're advocating for your landlord client. So this, that's what's called a positional conflict or an issue conflict. Um, and then there's the playbook conflict or the strategy conflict. Uh, one of the earliest cases is a lawyer who had been um, an insurance in-house lawyer for many years and left uh, working in-house to go represent clients, making claims against insurance companies, including his former employer. And they said, well, that client, that insured wasn't um, involved with us at the time, but you as their lawyer, you know how we do things. You know our playbook or our strategy. So you should be disqualified from handling any case that, uh, against us where you know our playbook or our strategy. Um, there's been disqualification of, of uh, patent firms doing IP work uh, because they represent obviously multiple, um, I don't know, biotech companies, uh, for example, doing IP, but then when there's a conflict between uh, two of them on their patents, well, you know our patent strategy defense, so you, you're disqualified uh, in this case. That's a real case uh, involved a Boston office of a law firm. So playbook or strategy conflicts. So are these solutions, and I say this only because you're gonna try and avoid this problem, right? We're lawyers, we try to avoid problems and, and plan for problems. So for one thing, rule 1.6 B7, the rule on confidentiality, allows for limited disclosure of client confidential information to detect and resolve conflicts arising from the lawyer's potential change of employment or change in the composition of the firm. Um, and so, if, they're taking over your cases that could arguably be um, changing the composition of the firm. So accordingly, confidential information may be disclosed to potential successor to determine whether they can take the case. There's another rule, 1.18D, which has to do with duties to prospective clients. This allows a lawyer to review what would otherwise be disqualifying information um, if reasonable steps are taken to prevent unnecessary disclosure. So 
try to avoid disclosing too much information. And the, but the lawyers then disqualified or, or screened from any potential participation in the matter. There is a workaround. Comment five permits the lawyer and the potential client to agree that no disclosure of that confidential information in the consultation will result in the lawyers later being disqualified from representing another client. So for your successor counsel, they, you can basically um, show them with the client's permission what the case is about, and then they can decide whether or not they're gonna take it or not. And if it turns out that the case that they said they're not going to take um, presents a conflict with one of, your, of their clients, if they've got this agreement in place, then they're not disqualified from representing their own client because they considered whether they could represent one of yours. I urge you to involve your personal representative in your succession planning. The person who's nominated under your durable power of attorney should know uh, or be able to access everything, including your disaster plan and your casualty manual, who would be your successor counsel. Any agreement or authorization for someone to handle your practice in the event of your death or disability or impairment, uh, except for these written consents from clients, that terminates on your death, okay? Whatever durable power somebody's operating under, whatever successor counsel agreements op they're operating under, um, ends unless the client is agreed. So you died, and then when you die, the personal representative of your estate has the sole legal authority to access your files and access your, your client finances, including client trust funds. Um, and by the way, your durable power also terminates on your death. So your personal representative should be involved. So you give instructions to your personal representative. If the person nominated under your, as your, under your durable power um, or your personal representative is not also your successor counsel or is not the custodian of your disaster plan, um, then they need to know how to access this. So people need to be in touch with one another, or at least how to get a hold of one another so that they can all literally be on the same page. Um, the instructions in your will to wind down your practice, and I don't want to step on Susan's territory here, but um, it should mirror the, the relevant provisions of your disaster succession plan. Um, the will should provide, uh, should either contain or have attached to a separate list of the names and contact information for all of the relevant nominated people. So are you ready for your disaster plan? Um, so I'm not trying to be all inclusive here. Um, there's a lot of materials out there. They're in a bibliography that you'll be able to have. Um, but again, I just want to touch on some important items. They need to be able to access your passwords, your records, your computers, your client files, spreadsheets, your email and your snail mail. They need to be able to contact and appear on behalf of your clients, notify the courts, other counsel, get extensions uh, for any matters that have to be delayed while they or somebody else takes over the case. You have to have some mechanism for transferring clients with the client's permission. They need to be able to file whatever needs to be filed so that you get penalized or your family or state doesn't get penalized. File tax returns, make um, deposits, payments, um, and otherwise act for your entity. They should be able to pay firm expenses, payroll, leases, whatever, taxes, contributions, like I said, case expenses. If you do not already have one, I suggest that you create an, an annual calendar for recurring dates 
Obviously, we all know about April 15th this year, which became July 15th. But beyond that, there are quarterly payments for 941s and 940s and forms that have to be filed. If you're solo and you therefore make estimated payments, those have to be paid. Also, the 1 ESs and the 1040 ESs. So create a schedule so that somebody knows what needs to be done. Um, again, access to your bank accounts. Um, they need to be able to generate bills and collect fees. It's fine that, that they've got your time records, but they need to be able to generate bills. Um, they need to deal with client recoveries if you're in a fee generating uh, practice. They need to be able to make deposits and make distributions. Again, if they get a client recovery, they need to be able to deposit in your IOLTA account and then make distribution. They need to be able to resign on your behalf for any fiduciary rules that you have assumed or and or they need to be able to assume those roles on an interim basis if that's the appropriate thing to do. Again, they need to be able to communicate with the person who holds your durable power and your personal representative. They need to be able to get you out of things, leases, contracts. They need to be able to hire and fire employees. Uh, if they're gonna value or sell uh, or close down the practice, they need to be able to do that if you're in a wind down situation. I mentioned a casualty manual before and I, suggest you uh, consider creating one. All right, you've formulated your plan, your list of steps. Now you've compiled all those documents that we've talked about, the list of passwords. You've, you've executed all, you've updated your office manual. You've executed all the lawyers, letters of authorizations. You've signed all the powers of attorney and all the other paperwork, all the other forms. So you should consider whether to put this in one place, sort of a, if I die or become disabled, collection of all the information and the materials um, so that somebody can get all of it at once. It, this should be a physical compilation because electronically stored documents um, may not be sufficient, and particularly somebody may not accept a printout copy of a, of a notarized document. Of course, you'd have an electronic backup um, on a flash drive or an external hard drive where somebody doesn't have to log into your computer to get the password to log into your computer. So have this separate. So where do you keep your disaster plan and your succession um, manual and all that other stuff? You have to keep it in a safe but accessible place. The compilation has to be kept safe from prime eyes and theft. You don't want somebody stealing list of your passwords, but it has to be someplace where those who need it can get to it. Have a custodian, your lawyer, your CPA, some trusted person who understands fiduciary duty, understands client confidentiality. They won't go prying, but they'll know when the time is right, how to distribute the relevant information and materials to the correct people. So you have to ask yourself and your custodian, can your custodian maintain the security and the confidentiality of your disaster plan materials? A thought to keep in mind is that not everything has to be in the same place. Depending on your situation, you may choose to keep some more routine information and more readily accessible information. I'm sorry, more accessible place. Uh, and then the more sensitive information in a more uh, secure location. Briefly, if you are successor counsel for somebody else, you may have agreed uh, to be successor counsel in a disaster plan for somebody else. You may have already done this, but don't assume that just because they've had the foresight to ask you to be their successor counsel um, and that you've accepted this designation that everything of theirs is in order. You should consider whether using your own disaster succession plan, your office manual, your 
casualty manual uh, as a, and checklist to review theirs and use theirs to review yours. Uh, this review may highlight the deficiency in their material or in your own materials. Listen, it's going to be uncomfortable discussing the inevitable, but it's better to do so in advance than to deal with the deficiencies and omissions either in their materials or your materials when it's too late to fix them. Do it now. COVID-19 has taught us all that no one is immune and no one is too young to be at risk. So where do you start? Well, have a checklist. Have a checklist of checklists. Well-conceived plans are gonna, that are gonna include all the necessary information, all the authorizations, the forms, all this stuff takes time. It takes time to think through it. It takes time to compile all the information, to make a list of whatever list you have to make a list of, account numbers, client code numbers. Um, all, it, all this stuff is gonna take time. It can't all be done at once. Uh, and you should realize that it's, it, this is a long-term process to uh, accumulate and um, assemble all this information. I will tell you that the ABA and many states have produced some excellent materials. They've got manuals, they've got form letters, they've got checklists. Um, they're really too numerous to even list the ones. And some of these states have, have materials that are too voluminous to list just in the bibliography. So what we've done is created a bibliography that'll highlight um, places to go, a number of states. Uh, we've tried to give you hyperlinks to uh, some of these, um, or you may just have to type in the URL. These will help you update your office manual and compile the information that's necessary for your casualty manual so that someone can step into your place, your shoes if someone, something should happen to you. And again, you need to consider who you're going to ask to be your successor or successors on both an interim and a long-term basis. The sooner you start, the better it's gonna be for everyone. So really start now. So here are some useful resources. Uh, this is in addition to the bibliography. My office has a website. Uh, if you go there, you can get the rules of professional conduct and you can also get our, our treatise on legal ethics, of which I'm a co-author. Uh, you can get all kinds of articles. There's a tab for articles um, on, on legal ethics. Um, the office of the Bar Council has an ethics hotline. Uh, they're still doing it remotely. So Monday, Wednesday, Friday, two to four, you can call in and ask to speak to an assistant bar council with any ethics questions. LCL, LOMAP, uh, Susan's gonna talk about that, but I will tell you they've got an excellent, excellent article um, and take a look at our bibliography. So I guess we're not doing this live, so I won't take questions now, but thank you very much. Thanks, uh, thanks Jeff. Wow, that was a, that was, uh, that was a lot of great stuff. Um, I, I guess my one takeaway from that is if anyone on the call is considering uh, asking me to be their backup, just forget it because uh, that's too much to do. Um, so hey, I want to, yes, Frank. So I, I, had, I wanted to thank Jeffrey for that terrific uh, presentation. I, I just had a, a couple of comments. I mean, I, I think the, one of the big takeaways there is you're not going to be able to do this overnight, that it's a big project. There are a lot of issues. Uh, successor counsel, you, if you're going to agree to be six, successor counsel, you really have to um, look before you dive into it. Um, you know, there's a, an expression, I think it's from Voltaire, you know, the, the perfect is the enemy of the good. Um, I mean, you just got to kind of reorientate the way you think. 
somebody needs to triage your practice. It doesn't, you might have this successor council that's good to go and they could cover all the issues Jeffrey's identified. Might be someone that you work with, a paralegal that's not a lawyer, but she might know how to get the files or get the, get the files to the clients and know who the clients are and what's in the pipeline. That's point number one. Point number two, and I'm a, effectively a sole practitioner as, as you are, Jacob, but this is not just a sole practitioner issue. I, I suspect many of the people on the uh, call are, are, are small firm practitioners. The, one of the people, one of the groups that need to kind of listen to Jeffrey and the other panelists is uh, the managing partners of big firms. I, 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 I'm a recovering big firm lawyer. The lawyers at big firms don't know what he, their partners are doing. So the, um, the, the, the patent lawyer in the um, uh, Washington office doesn't know what the Banksy lawyer is doing in Massachusetts. And yeah, they can you know, reconstruct what's going on from billing records and other records, but every lawyer has got to think about the worst case scenario and, 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 and take reasonable steps, emphasis on reasonable steps to, to, to protect the client. Um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a challenging situation when someone unexpectedly gets disabled or, or, or worse. Um, and it's a big mess to clean up and wind down someone's practice if, if these kind of uh, safety safeguards aren't in place. Um, and, uh, you, you know, the first step is to educate yourself about the issues and then come up with reasonable steps to protect the clients, to protect your business. Thanks, Frank. Uh, Jeffrey, uh, if you don't mind, um, we had a couple of questions I, 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 uh, I wanted to get to. Um, and sure. I, I, I'm in here, I think it's, uh, I think you may even be answering this now. Uh, but can a non-attorney be the successor of an IOLTA account? Well, it's, it's, <clears throat> it depends on what you mean by successor. In other words, um, those are client funds. So you can, let, let's say you're a solo practitioner and you've got a secretary or your secretary can have access to your IOLTA account, uh, but you're responsible for that conduct. Um, when you've got a successor, I think this is probably Susan's territory about winding down your practice, but um, you know, somebody's gonna have to distribute those funds. Uh, and it's going to be the executor, I'm sorry, we call them personal representatives now, um, the personal representative of the estate. Uh, what we have done in my office, um, and Michelle Yu, a shout out to Michelle, has done a fantastic job on this, is that we have commissioners appointed um, who are lawyers and then we take care of it. Um, it's not a good idea to have a non-lawyer um, uh, have access to the account. I mean, so the question is, you die and then some, who's going to be the successor? Well, your, your personal representative is going to have access to your state, uh, which includes your IOLTA account. So um, I wouldn't recommend it uh, only because you want somebody to um, know what they are doing with client funds. And uh, what that involves, and the same goes for client confidential documents. You don't want your family member, uh, some, some non-lawyer looking through your files. So let's say you're an estate planning lawyer and you do an estate plan for your neighbor and um, your spouse 
goes through your files after you're dead or disabled and says, oh, I see Mr. Neighbor's will. Um, I'll give it to Mr. Neighbor's son. And Mr. Neighbor's son takes a look at it and says, hey, wait a second. My dad left more money to my sister than he did to me and the will is gone, okay? So you don't wanna have non-lawyers who don't understand uh, fiduciary responsibility getting their hands on anything if I, if I had any say in it. All right, so I'm gonna take that as a yes, but no. Um, <laughs> all right, so we're gonna move on. Thanks, Jeff, so much. Uh, Elizabeth, um, you are the uh, co-chair of the Ethics Committee of the BBA. Um, can you pick, pick through some of those points that you wanted to mention and, and tell us about some of these ethical concerns that we need to be aware of? Yes, thank you. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Elizabeth Holding. I also am not a bankruptcy attorney, and I do want to leave time for Susan because I think that Susan's material meshes so well with Jeffrey's. I just wanted to highlight a couple of practical issues that may be arising for people during the pandemic and uh, jump through them quickly, and we want to leave time for questions at the end. You just got muted. So, Hang on one second. Am I now muted? Elizabeth, you're muted. No, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, okay. I'm going to keep moving. So um, I'm a co-chair of the Ethics Committee at the Boston Bar Association with Professor Paul Tremblay, who is a professor at Boston College Law School. We thank you for joining us and um, We, I, my screen is now stuck, so I'm not sure how that happened. Somehow I'm not able to move through this. It seems to be stalled. Um, and I'm just going to touch on a couple of things since the, I don't seem to be able to move through the slides, which is very strange because we tested this earlier. Okay. It's just, it's just the wallpaper. You, you've got the meat and potatoes to tell us what. what so there were, there were four things I wanted to touch on. And I think it's really more important that people hear from Susan um, than from me because, it, uh, because of the issues related to a practice. One relates to technology and security. And a lot of lawyers are now practicing in ways that they were not used to practicing four months ago. We all have an obligation to practice competently. Jeffrey mentioned the rule, which is the basic rule that we need to be practicing competently. To do that, we are required to understand and use the technology that, um, that is appropriate and to have knowledge about it. And the screen freezing is just an example of the types of things that arise. So, it is part of our ethical obligations that we understand uh, the technology that we're using and also that we are reasonably competent at using it. Uh, and that we understand the risks, for example, the Zoom bombing that was happening sort of earlier during the pandemic, so, which means we need to understand the security settings. And if we are in, um, in those platforms with our clients to make sure that our clients understand that as well. For example, the client needs to understand in a remote mediation whether the client is in a private uh, breakout room or in the um, joint setting so that communications are protected in the same manner as they normally would be. With respect to diligence, 
um, the information with the courts and the status of the courts and agencies in which we practice is changing, as we know, week to week. Courts are partially reopening now. We need to be checking diligently the court status, the agency status, and whether statute of limitations are now, uh, whether deadlines have now ceased being extended. So we're, we need to be checking the websites on that and um, making sure that we're keeping our clients updated on that. One of the issues that's arising as well um, that is sort of a parallel to the attorney health issue is the client health issue. We um, all uh, are likely to have clients um, about whose health we are concerned. If the client becomes incapacitated and is unable to communicate his or her wishes to us, we should be speaking with clients about um, who the client wants us to be in touch with. This is a sort of parallel to the successor issue. Have a phone number, a contact information for a family member of the client or a friend of the client because we all know it's our obligation to show up for a hearing if there is a hearing and if at the last minute we can't actually get the client on the line because the client has become unwell, then have a backup for that. That sort of falls within the um, client health concerns that people are experiencing now. My last point really relates to financial assistance for clients, not just in the bankruptcy world where I don't practice, but also just generally. Um, in litigation, under the ethical rules in Massachusetts, lawyers are not permitted to financially assist their clients. The rules prohibit it. The S, you may know that the SJC issued a clarification on June 10th of 2020, so about a month ago, about the rule that governs conflicts. And the clarification said, Nonprofit agencies who provide legal services to indigent clients can uh, make donations to those uh, indigent clients of the nonprofit agencies, legal services, to assist with clothing, food, shelter, transportation. So the clarification really went to the nonprofit agencies to say if you're receiving donations and you're concerned about whether you can assist your clients, you can. But uh, we cannot. Those of us who are private practitioners, even if we have pro bono clients and we're uh, being asked to financially assist, uh, especially now when we know um, people are experiencing financial difficulty, the rule does not permit private practitioners to do so. So I just wanted to make that point. I know there are questions coming in. I want there to be time for Susan and also for questions at the end. And uh, you know where to reach us if you need to. Thank you so much to everyone for joining today. Thank you, Elizabeth, very much. So uh, Susan, as soon as this boss points out, I wanna, I wanna turn to you now. Now when we, uh, when Frank and I were uh, putting uh, the panel together, uh, uh, you and I had a chance to speak and uh, you had such an, uh, an interesting spin on things. You, you have a, um, we were, you're going to discuss in part uh, winding up and sort of the psychology behind COVID and um, what attorneys are telling you. Uh, you said that uh, some are telling you that this is just, this is just too much. I just don't want to do this anymore because of, 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 uh, of, of what's being required now. Um, 
just owning a practice. Can, can you can you tell us? Uh, can you get into that a little bit, like sort of the psychology behind what COVID is doing to the profession, what it's done, and, and what you, what you see in the future? Yeah, um, I would be happy to, Jacob. Thanks so much. Um, so what I want to say, you know what? I can see why Elizabeth was having a problem. Um, let's try this. There we go. Um, there's always a workaround with technology. Keep that in mind. That's the first thing. First, take a deep breath when things don't work, and then look for the workaround. And then just, if all else fails, just, just ram the escape key, right? <laughs> there you go. Um, so I, I don't want to spend too, any time on who I am or what we do, but to say one thing to everybody. Um, if you have questions about anything related to what's going on here, if you're looking for support about anything that you're hearing today, please reach out to me. Please reach out to LOMAP. We have resources. We will be able to help you. We will be able to give you checklists. We will be able to point you in the right direction so that you don't feel like you're alone out there. Um, because what we're going through right now, everybody's going through, is so extremely different and difficult from what any of us is accustomed to. And in the kind of realm of psychology here, we can kind of look at this in two ways. And I think this is really helpful to think about this massive change that the COVID-19 pandemic has brought upon us as a change that has happened to us as distinct from the change that we decide to make happen. And I wanna spend some time explaining the difference between these two things, what you should look for, because it will ultimately help you move forward in a productive way. So normally when things are going smoothly or in a familiar way, we kind of feel like things are in balance and then something happens like the pandemic and it just disrupts everything. And it kind of sets off sort of like a little alarm reaction. Um, it is a shocking situation. Uh, you might even initially have felt physically not like yourself. Um, maybe you are feeling anxious and the way anxiety often manifests in people is a, a rapid heart rate, uh, rate, headaches, stomach aches, all kinds of things that sort of tell us we're just a little off. Something is happening, we need to pay attention. Um, that fight or flight response that you've heard of. It's like, boom, it triggers all of that. And um, eventually, you know, our, we might push back against that. We might be more aware of things. And all of this stuff is not just happening outside, but it's happening to us physically. It's happening and affecting our emotions. And all of this works together to impact how we think about things, how we process information, the decisions we make, and ultimately what we do. And hopefully we get a hold of all this uh, and able to um, manage what's going on before we're totally exhausted by this whole thing and you know, kind of out of um, sorts. And what we aim to really look for is to get to this point where we're looking at how we can make change happen, how we can manage a transition into what we need to do when we're thinking clearly, um, 
after we've sort of managed initially. And um, William Bridges years and years ago wrote a book called Transitions. And what was so useful about it is it his um, theory, his observations and his suggestions not only hold up over time, but they hold up over a host of different changes that we experience personally and professionally. And so this slide that you're looking at now is really about how we can make the changes that we want happen in an effective way. But the thing about it is the first step is always going to be about letting go, um, about looking at an ending to what was so that we can kind of prepare for what we want things to be like. And no matter how we kind of look at it, most human beings will react to a massive change like the COVID-19 pandemic as if they had to first kind of grieve the loss of the familiar, the comfortable, the status quo. And when we kind of do that, um, we might go through a period of pushing back or denying that anything's really that different or getting angry or getting sad. Um, but ultimately, we have to just let go of our, our preconceived notions and ideas of the way things should be and just accept reality for what it is. Because I can imagine sitting here and listening to the fabulous information that Jeffrey was sharing can feel kind of overwhelming because there's so much to think about, which is why I said, you know, think of us as a place to go to get some support in that because it's just so much. Um, but here's the thing, before we can actually jump forward, sometimes what happens is there's this need to pause and reflect. And I'm going to share some stories with you in, of sort of an amalgam of, uh, of clients that I've seen over the past, I guess it's now four months. And you can, you'll hear in some of the stories this need to kind of pause and reflect, um, to really kind of have this uh, time to think about kind of inward what you really want and what you really want to happen and what you don't want to happen before you can kind of move into that last phase of a new beginning where you can find opportunities, plan for new opportunities, manage situations that might otherwise seem overwhelming. So Susan, just to, when you say you're, are, are these people that you're talking about, these are lawyers? Oh, lawyers, all okay. lawyers, yes. So Lots you're telling me that it's okay so we're going to talk about your feelings. So, yes. Okay. Okay. I, oh, Jacob, I love that you said that because there's so much of being a lawyer that um, relates to either pretending we don't have emotions or taking those emotions and stepping them, you know, pressing them to the side as if somehow we um, are able to make decisions purely rationally. And in fact, um, there years and years ago was research on how human beings make decisions and that piece of a decision which has to do with making a choice is not possible without the part of the brain responsible for emotions. And, and I wanna emphasize this um, because I think it's really important to both understand how we're feeling at any point in time in order to be able to manage how we're feeling at any point in time. And in fact, there's this whole discipline 
called Emotional Intelligence. That is about how to recognize our emotions, how to manage our emotions, how to recognize emotions in other people, how to affect emotions in other people, um, which, by the way, is a key skill that every good trial attorney has. Um, but we don't talk about it. And, you know, to me, it doesn't make sense because it exists whether we talk about it or not. So let me share um, some of these stories a little bit. So this first story that I have um, to share with you, it is, and keep, keep in mind, I just want, so anytime you come to see us at Mass Lomap or LCL, everything not only is free, but it's 100% confidential. It never goes anywhere. I don't pick up the phone and talk to Jeffrey or anybody at the BBO. We don't have that kind of relationship. It's totally confidential. And indeed, what I'm sharing with you now is not about any one client. It, these are stories, somewhat hypothetical in the sense that they represent an amalgam. Um, I have had all of these things come up. I have seen very many lawyers um, over the past months, but just so you know, nothing is um, about an individual lawyer that you could take out and say, oh, I know who this is, because it doesn't, you know, isn't like that. I, re I tell you now, this um, information represents multiple, multiple lawyers. So imagine for a moment that um, you're an associate in a firm that has just one owner and you're it, it's the two of you. You work together day after day and you've been doing this for seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years and it works and you're happy as an associate, um, you're happy as an owner. And then COVID-19 hits. And as the associate, you say like, I really like my role. I know that we're a personal injury firm and I know that my boss goes into court all of the time and he's great at it. And I like my role in the back. I like that I just prepare motions or prepare a case for trial. I like that if I go into, a, into court, all it is is for a status conference and it works for me. And as the owner, you're saying, I'm happy with the way things are. I love what I get to do. I am so lucky to have an amazing associate who supports me day in and day out. We have great clients and the money is good and everything is dandy. And then COVID-19 hits and I'm the owner and I'm sick. I'm getting sicker and I'm not getting better and I'm ending up in the hospital and my family is beside itself and I'm not able to do anything and I'm losing consciousness and eventually I'm gonna die. Now, imagine you're the associate and this is all happening. What do you do? So I wanna kind of raise this for a couple of reasons because it's real, because this happens and it has happened and in this case, there was no succession plan, which, you know, you heard Jeffrey talk about how that having a succession plan in place, it's not just for you. It's not just for your clients. It's to take care of people that you care about, like your associate, like your clients. 
Um, and so to, to put that in place is, it's just a gift to everybody. Um, but what about the associate? Okay, the associate has this um, situation fall on uh, their shoulders. What do they do? Thankfully, um, the BBO, as you heard um, Jeffrey talk about, and Michelle Yu is a commissioner over there who has put to, has managed to put together a program to help you know families who might suddenly be looking at a um, loved one's law practice that help them figure out what to do. But then you're the associate. You're sitting here and you're thinking to yourself, what? Imagine, just take a moment and what would you be thinking? I mean, I can tell you some of the things that um, people who've been in this situation have come to me and asked. They've asked me questions like, what are my ethical obligations? I made an appearance on a case. I'm listed on the pleadings, but there was never any intention that I would try a case. I don't ever want to try a case. What am I supposed to do? So it's facing this situation of maybe having to step up or it's facing the situation of having to make a decision about what you want to do, and what you don't want to do. But what I promise you in this situation, it turned out, um, it tur everything turned out okay. Uh, the, you know, BBO um, got, was involved and was able to help out. And this associate was able to make a decision about what they really wanted to do with their lives. Uh, and is spending some time right now thinking about that. Um, because like for many people, it's easier to sometimes figure out what you don't want than it is to try to figure out what you do want. Uh, and so there isn't really a way of avoiding um, this messiness that happens to us, but if you can kind of slow down, take a breath, and let yourself, first of all, have the feelings, know that you're having these feelings, name these feelings, it will give you that time to allow them to settle so that your cognitive skills can come back, um, that you can start thinking a little bit more clearly, that you can start developing a plan for how to handle whatever the situation might be, to think about who to reach out to for help in managing the situation. Um, and it generally just takes that first step of kind of um, recognizing this is reality, and um, I'm gonna have to figure out how to deal with it. And I feel crappy going through this. I mean, that's just how it is. Um, I wanna tell you about another situation. Again, this was not just a single attorney who came to me with this kind of problem. It happens over and over. And I think it's important to understand sort of the underlying thinking that we have as attorneys. So most of us chose to go into law because it is a helping profession. We wanna help people with our expertise because they don't have the expertise needed to navigate some important decision in life, decision for their business, ability to do something that requires the expertise that we as lawyers have. 
And so we're looking to help people. It's sort of our natural default. We have good intentions. The problem is that what happens is sometimes those good intentions lead to bad decisions. <clears throat> so I want to explain to you a little bit about decision making. Um, so Daniel Kahneman, he uh, is a Nobel Prize winning economist, and he wrote this book, pretty thick book called um, Thinking Fast and Slow. And in it, he describes these two um, parallel processes that we have for processing information and making decisions. <clears throat> One is kind of the gut feeling, the fast thinking, and the other is a more sl uh, slow, deliberate, logical, analytical way of thinking and deciding. What happens when we're under stress is that we fall back on our defaults and our defaults happen to be a myriad of um, sort of cognitive mindsets um, like puzzles that we shove things in. So a scenario seems familiar and so we jump into it and we react almost like it's a program that's been turned on um, just like that. And so some of these um, you've heard of, we call them unconscious biases, and there are numbers of them. And the one, you know, one among many that lawyers have by virtue of who we are, by virtue of our training is this let me help. And so imagine this, um, client, uh, uh, the lawyer has a very loyal long time client. And this client is going through a crappy situation. Could even be bankruptcy, right? Could, um, in this scenario, there are a lot of people who are now filing for bankruptcy. But um, the lawyer has never practiced in any federal court. But the loyal client asks and pleads and eventually wears down the, the um, lawyer who says, sure. I will help you with your bankruptcy case, or I'll help you with your, court, your case in federal court, or I'll help you with your case that's different from anything that I've ever done, but you know what, you're such a good client, I'm gonna figure it all out and I'm gonna do it. So we've all got this ethical requirement to be competent, and sometimes in our head we think it means one thing when it means much more. It doesn't mean that you care, it means that you have an ability, you have an understanding of the substantive piece of the legal problem and the procedural piece of the legal problem, and even now the technology piece of running a firm. Um, well, imagine that this lawyer who said yes realizes, oh my gosh, there were things that I didn't know I didn't know. Um, so for example, let's just say, you know, it was suddenly having to practice in a federal court and never having done so. Um, when I used to practice, I practiced both in the state court and the federal court, and I had a way of explaining this to younger associates, which is the state court and the, the local courts, they have so many rules. And there's this and there's that. Federal courts, they don't really have as many, and they're pretty straightforward. But if you make a mistake in state court, there's probably a way around it. If you make a mistake in federal court, people get upset with you. The judges don't think kindly of you. So you kind of have to know. And now, you know, in this day and age in, in federal courts, 
um, you, you better know how to use Pacer. You better have email set up and, and ready to go. I mean, there are things that you might not have had to think about um, when it comes to practicing in state courts, depending on what your practice was. And sure enough, this was a stumbling block for, you know, a client. Um, and on top of it, right, you know, you might ask yourself, well, why? Why would this lawyer have taken on this case? Well, guess what? None of this happens in a vacuum. So you've got the loyal, lawyer, loyal client asking over and over pleading. And you've got lawyers now who've got external stressors, right? So in this one scenario, I had a client whose um, a child who had been in college was now coming home, um, who had lost uh, another good friend and colleague to COVID who had another client who was in the hospital with COVID. And all of this is swirling around in the lawyer's head. And so the stress of all this, not dealing with it, not thinking of it, um, pretending you know, that you've got a handle on your emotions and we, we took the emotions out, we put them in the bookcase, led to a bad decision. Um, good intentions, bad decisions. Happens to us all the time, we're human, it's just that in our professional capacity, um, the ethical violations that can run from it um, are myriad, and we want to watch out for that. Again, it's so important to be aware. Um, I have this, I happen to have been reading the Boston Globe, and there was an article, I don't know, you know, some of you must might have seen it on July 5th. And it was, um, you know, the, the uh, title was, If I Die Now, Have I Lived the Life I Wanted to? Um, the pandemic has people examining their lives, and some don't like what they're seeing. Well, sure enough, I've had many clients like that um, coming in the door, thinking about their careers, because there's something about going through this profoundly difficult um, experience that has life and death at the forefront that's getting people to think about what they're doing day to day, to think about their life holistically, think about their well-being in a way that they hadn't before, to say that, you know, I'm not sure that um, this is what I want to be doing. Um, so priorities can change. People can have deep anxiety about survival, people are being forced to adjust in a way. So um, imagine a lawyer with a barely profitable estate planning and probate practice, right? Do I wanna do this anymore? Or a lawyer who um, inherits uh, his father's practice and a family practice he took over five years ago, and now it's like, you know, I'm not sure that's what I wanna be doing with my life. Or the many lawyers I have seen who are noticing that their practice, their pipeline of clients and work is suddenly drying up. And they're re-examining their lives, they're re-examining what they really want out of life. And so I think it's really important right now, especially if one of the things you're noticing is that 
you have more time because maybe the clients aren't banging on your door as they were in February. Um, and what I think it, it take the time to think about what are you willing to tolerate and what are you not willing to tolerate any longer? Um, spend some time thinking about this question, what do I want, what do I not want? Because it's not easy and we don't normally give ourselves the time to really ponder that. Um, and I, I, uh, I love this book. This um, was my favorite childhood book. And, you know, I sometimes think that, you know, if you grow up in Massachusetts by uh, the ocean, you know, McGillicott's Pool, your, your parents may have read that to you, or maybe if only if you were a child in the 60s. Um, but the thing that's so, I think, important is to think about, you know, even this book that's about imagination and hope. Um, and it's a book about looking beyond our assumptions, what we think must be true about ourselves, about um, the practice of law, about the world that we're living in, um, and to figure out what isn't just an assumption, um, what's really out there. Uh, I also think it's kind of a book about reality. So, you know, in this story, you know, Miguel gets pulled, it's a kid who's who's fishing in this little hole in the ground. And, you know, he's asked, why are you doing this? And he's saying, you know, well, I don't really know what's out there. And here's the thing, I get a lot of lawyers um, in the door and most recently more and more where they have been trying to make a go of things and they're, you know, barely making ends meet and they're not happy. And I have to, suggest that sometimes it's worth looking at your practice and saying, you know, am I fishing in a pond that maybe is too small? Um, and there are lots of other lawyers and maybe technologies even infringing on the practice of law in your area. Um, and, you know, maybe it's not going to work for you, or maybe you just need to look at the bigger picture, look outside yourself and see what other opportunities might be there for the taking. Um, and I want to kind of bring this all home and talk a little bit about technology because that's also what I see. So if we have uh, learned nothing else from this pandemic as people practicing law, I think we have learned that um, Technology is something that can help us sustain the practice outside of the office and maybe even grow it. So, you know, I, I've had quite a few clients that are looking to incorporate technology for the first time. And it can be both a energizer and it can be a stumbling block. I mean, it's something new. Um, but with the right attitude, kind of taking a dive into something new can be fun, it can open up possibilities. But there are some, you know, tricky areas that come up over and over. Um, so I had a client who, um, had several actually, who either wanted to take credit cards, needed to suddenly take credit cards as a way of getting paid, um, or um, were, were and I don't, I'm telling you now, the last thing, don't ever do, or holding on to 
credit card information for their clients and then charging the client um, as uh, time was incurred. You don't do that. You just don't ever do that. But if you want to take payment by credit card, it's easier on your clients and it's relatively easy if you're using the right technology and if you're connecting the technology to the right um, accounts. IOLTA accounts for um, retainers and operating accounts. If it's a flat fee that you've earned, you still might wanna, as Jeffrey said, put aside that amount before you've earned it, um, but you don't wanna, you don't wanna commingle the two. Um, and you certainly don't want to actually put money into your IELTS account through a credit card, say, oh, I, you know, I build it, it's mine, and I have a bill to pay um, for, my, for um, my law office. I will just use the operating, the IELTS account to pay that bill. You always want to maintain the separateness. But it, if you do it right, and we can help you to do it right, um, it just gives you so many more opportunities. Uh, there's no need for expensive space storage for your files anymore. Uh, you, you can go paperless, you can have backups, um, you can protect the integrity of your data uh, as well as the confidentiality of it through proper encryption, which so much of the technology has. I'm just saying that there are opportunities to bring in technology. Best to come see us before the mistakes happen because um, they're a little, sometimes can be kind of challenging to fix them. Um, but it is there. Technology really makes it possible for lawyers to practice anywhere. Um, and I don't know how long this is going to go on. Even if you can return to your office, um, you may not be able to because of the limitations on the number of people, or you may have clients that are hesitant to come into your office anyway. They don't want to leave their home um, for their own safety. So I think technology is one of those things. It's time, if you haven't already brought it in, um, now's the time to do it. Just do it right uh, before the mistakes happen. Uh, and I want to put a challenge out there to everybody because I think what we're all kind of going through um, with this total upheaval is that there are opportunities. There are challenges and there are opportunities. And nine times out of 10, we're putting something off, whether it is introspection about what we want or it's exploring the use of new technology, whatever it might be. So I'd say, what, you know, what are you gonna do that you've been putting off? Because now's the time. So I put that challenge out there for you and um, I think happy to take any questions. This is how you can reach me. Um, I also want to mention um, Laura Keeler is our new practice advisor. She can also be reached. It's just Laura at MassLomap.org instead of Susan at MassLomap.org. So thanks very much. And I'm going to turn it back over to Jacob. Thank you. That was, that was just so much great information. Um, I... Uh, was questioning, I mean wrongly, just because out of my own ignorance, uh, whether as a bankruptcy attorney you can take credit cards, and you totally can. Um, can't be from the debtor, but you know you can still take a credit card. Um, but uh, I, 
a bankruptcy attorney who's, who's uh, much more successful than me um, told me that, uh, uh, you know, he started taking credit cards. And I, I said, well, you, you worry about that at all? He said, no, it's just ethical to do. You can't, you got to set it up so the charge from it, the whatever percentage they take obviously can't come from the IELTS account. There's a couple other steps you got to take. Um, but, uh, you know, even, even if you get 97.5% of the fee, 97.5% uh, of something is better, zero, better than 0% of nothing. I'm just like, yeah, that, that's right. So I've been taking credit cards ever since then. Um, I, I want to just hit on a couple, uh, a couple of questions that we had here because we only have a couple of minutes left. Um, uh, I know that, and I guess, Susan, just for, I guess this is sort of for you, but um, LOMAP has a, has a lot of great resources for lawyers um, just in general. But we've had a couple of people who have asked, um, pointed out that, you know, Solo attorneys, um, how, how can you find a successor, a successor counsel that uh, Jeffrey was talking about? Um, uh, is there any resources that can maybe help locate someone, I mean, that might be willing to act in that capacity? Does anyone, I guess any panelist know if, if that resource is out there? You know, if I, if I need a, uh, if I need, uh, if I need someone to have my passwords, you know, like sort of break class in case of emergency attorney. Um, where do I find that person? I don't know. I mean. Well, I like what Jeffrey said about that. He, I think he gave a lot of good criteria to use. At the top of the list, he said somebody you trust. You know, I think that's a big piece of it, right? There are a lot there. You, I thought his materials were fabulous because you could use them as a checklist and go down that checklist to see whether somebody who you're considering to name as a successor kind of meets the criteria. Um, but it's gotta be somebody you trust. And I will say, you know, I was listening and I was thinking it makes total sense. Like if I'm a senior attorney, my network is mostly senior attorneys. And that's my bad, right? I and mean, that's kind of how we have learned to operate. Um, and I can't really choose somebody who has the same vulnerabilities that I do because I'm not really protecting my clients if I do that. Um, and I do think that, you know, there isn't a magic list. Um, I think maybe we have to, as a collective, work harder um, to really get our networks bigger. Uh, you know, I think the bar associations do phenomenally well at that. I think they, they give the platform for people to meet but it still falls on the lawyers to go, you know, expand your network, um, you know, meet people that are really going to uh, meet the criteria and that you trust. Right. Trust is, trust is basically the operative word of this entire thing. I think if you can boil it down. Um, so uh, last thing people have been asking, uh, slides, uh, we're going to have the BBA is going to be emailing those to all, um, all registered uh, people. So, um, so that's great. Uh, uh, any, any final thoughts? I mean, Frank, I know you're the, uh, you've been quiet for too long. What do you want to? Well, no, no, I, I, listen, I'm just taking it all in. Uh, I mean, there's, there's a, a lot of different levels here. I'm, I'm just very, very grateful to Jeffrey and Elizabeth and Susan. Um, you know, I'm getting a little existential after Susan's presentation. Um, you know, maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't be devoting my life to bankruptcy. Maybe, 
maybe I should become um, a runway model or, you know, you know, brush off my um, career in other areas. But no, I, I, it, it, there's a lot going on and, and uh, in the world and in the way we think about our practice and how we act as lawyers. And um, I, I, that's the silver lining to the, the COVID cloud. Um, I, I just, I, I want to close on a very positive note um, in two ways. I, I agree with Jeffrey and Susan, Elizabeth, that this um, disaster planning can be overwhelming. It's a difficult subject to think about emotionally. Um, and there's a lot of legal issues that need to be uh, addressed. Th th that being said, there are a lot of resources out there to help you. And we're all available to take calls offline. There's a lot of electronic resources. And you just need to get started uh, thinking about these issues. So that, that would be one comment. And the second comment I'd have um, is, uh, you know, start now. But the other comment I have is, is, is we, could, we, could, we have this uh, shelter in place continuing. And we were talking before the, the presentations that, that people aren't returning to work right now. Many of the lawyers aren't going back to the Boston offices and so forth. Um, but doing these seminars remotely is a way to stay in the game. And I just wanted to trumpet the uh, Chapter 7 Basics training that's going forward next week on Thursday, a week from today, uh, July 23rd. And we, the BBA has recruited a, a couple of ringers for that one as well. Um, uh, Natasha Lewis is a wonderful lawyer, and she works at the uh, Volunteer Lawyers Project, and she's excellent, excellent uh, teacher. And our own Kate Nicholson, who's, you know, a superstar. So, uh, I, you know, one, one way to kind of stay engaged with the practice and stay up to date is to get involved at this, uh, this, this pro bono training. And I've always got more out of pro bono um, than the services I've donated. Um, it's, it's good for the soul. It's not just about succession planning and disaster planning and making money. It's uh, giving back. And that's maybe uh, one of the ways that you can keep yourself together uh, during the COVID cloud. So that, that's what I would say, Jacob. Yeah, I mean, the other, you know, the other thing is that, uh, you know, Jeffrey's, you know, one of his points is that, you know, you can't take cases that you're, that you're, um, you don't have a certain level of expertise to take. And we know bankruptcies are coming, you know, whether it's in the fall or in the spring, next spring. But if you want to get to a position where you can take bankruptcies ethically, go to a training. Yeah. They show you how to file a case, a um, uh, couple of those, and, you, and you'll, be, you'll, you'll be all set. Um, if you have to be an expert, why do they call it the practice a lot, Jacob? I never, I, hey. This is I, I, let's, I think we, we leave the last word to the panelists. Elizabeth, you, Susan, and Jeffrey have the last word. What do you think? Tell, tell us what you think of the Banksy bar. Don't judge us just based on Jacob and I. Oh, that's completely unfair question. Thank you for joining us. I, I can tell you. I, so um, I can, two things. One, um, one of my, I'm going to call him a dear friend, um, who was incredibly helpful with a client um, who had a bankruptcy issue, Dimitri Lev, member of the bankruptcy bar. So I love the bankruptcy bar. And also, um, I want to say it was maybe two or three years ago, everybody at LCL Lomap met with the bankruptcy judges who were amazing. 
And one of the things that they will do, um, because they, you know, they're not, I, this is what I, you know, here I'm going to preach a little bit, but the bankruptcy, the judges in general, the and the bankruptcy judges and the people over at the BBO, Bar Council, they're not out to get lawyers. They're out to help lawyers. And what I love about- It's the, just something the BBO would say. Yeah. It's so true though. I mean, you know, you, I can call them up and they'll give me resources, but they want to help. They don't, they don't want a bigger caseload. So um, what I love about the bankruptcy judges is that they said, you know what? Sometimes we have, you know, um, lawyers who come in and there's just something, they're, they're challenged with something, maybe there's something emotional going on, whatever it might be. Can we just kind of give them a little nudge and send them to you? And I'm like, you know what, of course, because I think we all want to see lawyers succeed. We all practice. We all know how difficult it is. We're all in it to help people. Um, so long story short, I'm a big fan of the bankruptcy. You know something that's interesting you should say that back in the old days, when you actually went to court, you actually were physically present in the courtroom. When you sit down at counsel's table in the bankruptcy court, on the table is a brochure for lawyers concerned for lawyers. So the bankruptcy lawyers got a lot out of their relationship and their meeting with you. Jeffrey, the Babe Ruth of the bar discipline system. We're gonna give Jeffrey the last word. We're gonna give Jeffrey the last word, and then we're gonna wrap it, and then we're gonna we're gonna shut it down. I want to echo what Susan said in, in two respects. First of all, she is there to help, and and on more than one occasion, we have said to people, you know, you've got to go there. You need help. We're not here to punish you. We're here to to redirect you. And bar council has um, a diversion program where rather than discipline the lawyers, they redirect them, and a lot of times. That redirection involves Susan and her staff um, because it doesn't help anybody if all that comes out of it is lawyer discipline. It doesn't benefit the client and it doesn't benefit the lawyer if all that happens is the lawyer gets suspended, disbarred, or you know, disciplined in some fashion. The client doesn't get anything out of it. The, the lawyer doesn't get anything out of it. The family doesn't get anything out of it. So Susan does God's work and thank you. <laughs> Thanks everyone. Thank you all. Bye. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, everyone. If you need any resources or have any questions on the program, please don't hesitate to email me, dnewton at bostonbar.org. Everybody enjoy your night. Thank you. Thanks. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye. Thank you.